new beginning. New beginning. New beginning. New beginning. Good afternoon, everybody. This is episode three of the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ryan. Alongside, as usual, Joshua Black. How are you today, Josh? I'm doing pretty good. It's nice to have another episode so soon. It seems like we're getting a, a lot of a, a lot of hits, a lot of people listening to this. So I'm very excited to do another one for the people to listen to. Might as well get started. We have a special guest with us today, our editor for the Grief Dreams website newsletter, Jade Black. Jade Black, you're a spiritual coach, life coach. Yeah. You are from BC. How was the trip? It was it was good. Long flight, but it was it was good. Thank you for asking. Definitely. I know earlier we were talking about the time change and getting to sleep, getting adjusting. <laughs> that can be definitely difficult. Um, you're tired right now a little bit? I'm tired right now, okay. yes. We're going to energize you up, right? Okay, yeah. sounds good. That's what this podcast does, right? It gets people motivated to live life. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I had the opportunity to read your book, Quiet Mind, Open Heart, and I was very, very impressed with it. I just, the main thing that I liked about it was the casual tone, but also keeping to the point with the ordeal that your life, that you had to go through all the challenges that you faced. And it's not, it wasn't a kind of a simple cookie cutter solution. Uh, You know, you kind of kept going and kept learning new things as you went with each chapter brought a different type of scenario, different story, and a different learning experience. Could you speak on that? Yeah. How the writing Um, process was for the book and- My first, um, I was more used to academic type writing, so it was my first non-academic venture. So I liked that because I had always written, you know, in a diary or a journal or something, so a lot less pressure and then no need to, you know, for citations and all that. So a little more flex, you know, a little more flexible with uh, what I could write and a little more creative. Like um, I started each chapter with a poem just out of my personal journal. So that was a good way to incorporate kind of, you know, my own perspective on things. And um, I tried to connect the poem to the content in the chapter. And so that was cool that I was able to, to kind of pick and, and go from there. Um, so I liked that. I loved, just like you said, how it was casual. I mean, it's essentially just my diary gone public. And, um, you know, I changed the, uh, a little bit of the language in it and stuff, but um, just, you know, I wanted to make it short and make it something that people could just pick up and, and read, not something that's so overwhelming, because I even find myself, if I have, you know, a huge, you know, thick book, you can just feel like you get started on it and it's kind of like, so I want it to be something too that people could just could go back to and read one chapter or yeah not so overwhelmed so I tried to keep it relatively short and concise in terms of just getting my point across and uh, I think that's a, a really good good thing because yeah our culture nowadays everyone is just like Instagram and um, all short things that people look at they don't have the attention like they used to where reading big novels was like a pleasure now it's people want to like get through a chapter to see how much they've done, right? Like the work they've done. I think that's what I like about your book is that the concepts that are in there, um, it's very short, maybe two or three pages be a chapter, but it gives you a sense of completion, that you're doing something. And so if you read a chapter, put it down. And I feel like I did it as I read a chapter. And it's almost like a positive reinforcement to go back to the book. Mm-hmm. There's some books out there that are just like, you know, 30 pages, 40 pages for a chapter. And I, I tend to lose focus. See, and that's enjoyable for me. Like, I like long books and, and stuff, you know, but I just, you know, like asking around. And I think after being in academia and stuff for so long and reading so many books, so many lengthy books, and 
And so it's kind of just like, I want something really refreshing. And some of my favorite books are like little pocket books and little, do you know what I mean? Little affirmation books or just kind of things you can carry around or that I could just sit down with a cup of tea and like finish it in an hour and a half or two hours and yeah. be done with it. And that's, kind what, of, and that's what the book sort of seems like. It, t- it took me maybe what, an hour, maybe a little bit yeah, longer. Yeah, depending to actually, on how fast of a reader you yeah, are. Yeah, how, like how long to, it takes to actually read it. So it's a very easy read and it's say you can accomplish something. So a lot of people who have kids or are busy in this world, actually it's not intimidating for them to pick up, to read. No, and, that, yeah. and you know, I think, you know, when Sean said about the casual language and stuff, just, you know, because um, I talk to a lot of people and they feel like academic kind of writing, it's certain jargon and stuff, and a lot, not a lot of people connect to that. You have to be really in that, you know, field to understand it. So I think for me, it was like a long awaited break to say, I just want to write the way I would write to myself in my journal or whatever, and just put it out there. And, and, um, and then like the research was easy because it was my life. I don't have to like, you know, check the facts and all that stuff. It's just like right all there. How was it to write about your life for the, for the world to see? Cause a lot of times when, um, we have a journey, we tend to keep a lot of it inside and I think the same reason why people keep their dreams of the deceased inside because like they don't want other people to change their meaning or judge them. Did you ever feel isolated or have fear of judgment when you wrote the book, like before you published it? I mean, people in my immediate circle were so supportive of, of the like people who know me. And so that was, I got a lot of encouragement from that. Um, but I did feel like, you know, cause obviously the book is very private and talk about some things that are really heavy in nature. So a uh, part of me when I wasn't in my Zen state, do you know what I mean? I would, I would feel, oh my God, like, I can't believe you're putting this stuff out there. You know, like people are gonna really judge you. But at the same time, I think powerful and therapeutic because I've always been a person that really has had a desire to just own my life. And I always, you know, and not be ashamed of the things I've gone through and really not be ashamed of the things I've gone through that I've utilized them to grow. Because, I mean, it's one thing to go through a bunch of stuff and not use it for anything. Like, everyone goes through stuff and some people, it closes them up further and they just kind of shove it down. Like, oh, I never want to consider that. But I'm more paying attention to what I went through. So I think it was a way for me to clear it out of my conscience. Like, I'm no longer the only one carrying it. Whether one person read the book or 10,000 or a million, do you know what I mean? still like okay, now it's out there. It's not just mine to carry it. And um, just very therapeutic to write it and just say, I own it, this is me. You know, and people who write memoirs or autobiographies or, or, you know, things like that. And I think other people who have, like, went down the same road would really agree that it's it's very liberating mm-hmm. because you, 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 like, there's nothing more to be said after that. Well, I'm glad, I'm very glad to hear that. And for some of the listeners that um, haven't read the book yet, um, but might uh, what was some of the some of the stuff you went through that you said that wasn't a lot of people wouldn't speak about? Can you speak upon maybe some of the, the challenges or some of the addictions that you had? Yeah, um, yeah. I think you know a lot of it was just like more generally my banter inside my mind, like just doubtful thoughts I had about myself or very critical thoughts I had about myself. You know, like just going through struggles and feeling like I wasn't good enough or I wasn't pretty enough or you know, I don't like myself or I'm a fail, like just a lot of that, like more generally just negative self-talk. So I wanted to talk about that because I always felt like when I was in my solitude and I would have those thoughts, 
negative thoughts about myself and my life or whatever they were, right? And I've had them all. So to have that, I felt like I'm alone because I wasn't really having conversations with a lot of people. Like, you know what? Sometimes I look in the mirror and like, I'm like, oh God, you're, you know, you're ugly or whatever it is. And so you feel like, am I the only one who thinks that of me? Do you know what I mean? Or I don't have enough education or my job isn't good enough or just any kind of critical thought. And I thought like, no one was really telling me like, I have those thoughts too, Jade. Do you know what I mean? So for me, my whole life, I really looked for somebody to connect with in that way. It was like, I know I'm not the only one who thinks negatively about myself or has doubtful thoughts, but nobody's talking about it. Everyone's pretending like, you know, everything's fine and whatever. So, you know what I mean? It was kind of like my way of saying like, where are you people? So I couldn't really find a lot of people like that. So I thought if I can't find it, then I'm just going to be her. Like, I'm just going to be the one. And then hopefully when I say I've had horrible thoughts about myself, you know, and a lot of struggles and a lot of shame related to those struggles. So once you put that stuff out there, it allows other people to say, okay, now it's safe. I can take my mask off. Oh God, I think I'm ugly as well when I look in the mirror sometimes, or I'm critical of my body or my achievements or my lack of achievements, whatever it is. Yeah, it's, it, I, I, I definitely see that with the book. It, it seems like earlier on with the struggles that you had, the lies were becoming, or you thought that they were truth, but yeah. you slowly discovered that, hey, there's a different truth, there's a different narrative to this story, this movie, if you will, of my life. Mm-hmm. And and then when you saw the truth of that, and it seems like you wanted to share it and show other people how they might be able to get out of their self-taught lies and yeah. stories about themselves. Yeah, and then, you know, in, in all the way that that low self-esteem and negative self-talk really manifest was, um, you know, because it obviously caused me pain, some of the thoughts that I had myself and embarrassed and, and whatever, and just not loving yourself. So that, when you don't love yourself, you, you tend to, you know, pick up addictions, manifest addictions and stuff. So um, when I got, when I was young, I started, you know, using drugs and one thing led to another. And uh, so like, you know, in my, in my late adolescence, I just became like a really hardcore drug addict and was using all the time. And so not only did I have, you know, I'm trying to cover up the way that I feel about myself or my pain that I don't understand or my emotions that I don't understand. And so I'm saying I'm going to self-medicate as a way to help me cope with this. So you have that and now you have the shame of using because now you're embarrassed that you're an, an addict. So it's just, it's compounding. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And when you, like, there's a lot of stuff on um, addiction, like intervention, different shows people watch. And one thing I, I tend to find is that a lot of people blame the addict for their behavior. Is is that the way to go? Or is there something else, like, I guess, governing? Well, I'm not really in the, in, in the business of blaming anybody, but at this point in my life, but I feel like it, it's, it's easy to look at somebody and say, you've made these choices without considering, and maybe I have a different perspective because I'm a master's degree in criminology with a focus on addiction and recovery. So I've spent a significant amount of time looking at the other factors. And so to just say somebody's an addict and that's their fault without understanding what social and psychological factors have led to the manifestation of that addiction. So it's easy to say, you know, that person's weak or, you know, why can't they just get their life together without consideration for, okay, what's happened to them? You know, like I view drug addiction as a social problem, not a criminal problem or, you know, I mean, yeah. So I have a different perspective on it, but 
Um, I think it's easy to blame whoever's like addicted to whatever. It's easier to do that than to have compassion and consider, okay, let me see this for what it really is, which is a person. Because um, I don't, I don't believe that anyone just wakes up and says, you know what, I just let's just become a heroin addict. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think that's anybody's goal or aspiration. Yeah. They're driven to that because they don't have the skills or the support or do you know what I mean to cope with that. So it's like. It's more, wow, you're in that much pain that you have to resort to doing this to yourself, to numb that. So it's not about, I can't believe you're using drugs. It's, oh my God, you're hurting that much that that you feel like you have no choice but to go this route because it's the only way that you can cope and get some relief. Yeah, in your book, you talk about that. You talk about how um, you went to, I think it was cocaine, yeah. as a way to, to numb out. but. In, in the chapter, you actually thank the cocaine for actually saving your life in the sense that you had so much, it was the only tool that you were given at that time um, to continue to walk through life. You said you'd probably commit suicide. For sure. Without for sure. That. For sure. And I think, you know, in the social circle and stuff that I was in, it was, you know, normalized. So if people around you are using it, it's like, you know, it's cocaine, just use it and it's fine and whatever, right? So you're just thinking like everybody around you is going to be justifying why they're using no one's going to be saying, this is crazy. We're all running from ourselves by using. It's not, you know what I mean? It's not termed like that. It's like, we're just partying and stuff. It's only when you really start exploring, like, why am I doing this? And I can't function properly, and I don't feel good. Like, anybody who knows that's been on a co- uh, cocaine binge. And, you know, that's not a positive experience. Coming down from that and using that much, it's not a positive experience. It's not good for your spirit, your financial situation. Like, you know what I mean? Anything really. So, so yeah, if I didn't, if I had tools at that time in my life to cope with, like I was saying before, my emotions and stuff, then I probably wouldn't have needed cocaine, but it helped me get through that period in my life. And I, you know, talk about in the book that, cause I, and me and cocaine have had a, had a, a long relationship, took a long time to get to a uh, point where I was more neutral towards it because obviously I had a love affair with it, in love with it. And then, you know, when you start to get clean and stuff, you have a severe aversion to it. You're mad at it and you betrayed me and you know what I mean? You control my life and I'm pissed at you and, and all that. So, and then you come to a place more neutral on saying you served a very specific purpose for me. And yeah, it wasn't like ideal and I wouldn't wish that on anybody else. But at the same time, without that, if I didn't have that, what is the alternative for me? Because that helped me get through some of the toughest times in my life. And it also created some of the toughest times in my life as well. That's interesting. Uh, I've been reading some articles about uh, overdose, when people overdose on pain medication. So that's kind of like that, where it has a use, it has a purpose, but you know, it can lead to different things if mismanaged, misused. And I think addiction itself, you know, we definitely label people and we simplify it with I think so with addiction and say well that person's you know on this drug they're addicted to that drug well you can get addicted to coffee you know uh, sugar so working out work, yeah absolutely writing gambling like it's just and 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 you know what podcasting, podcasting. <laughs> sure if it becomes unhealthy you controlling your life you miss work to, to podcast yeah. but yeah like uh you know your wife's like pay attention to me you're like no <laughs> do this but yeah so I, I you know I think yeah and but I think too it that has a lot to do with the criminal you know what I mean like uh, illicit drugs are illegal, uh, illegal so that's going to have a certain stigma attached to it working out isn't illegal if you work out too much is that going to become a detriment to your life 
It can. It, it seems like though we we push it into the well, the person's weak. You know, their their yes. heart is weak, the will is weak. But it's just such a simplified way to label it. I I, I don't yeah. like that. I don't no. like people going through addiction. They're not weaker than anybody else. No, which, I don't. I agree. You know. Yeah. Yeah, when you see a lot of these shows, like Intervention and stuff like that, and a lot of these people, you know, either have lost someone they really loved, right? And they're trying to cope with the loss or grief. Other people have been raped. Like other people that physical abuse. Yeah, abuse yeah. and trauma. And when if people can, I think, understand that. I think what your book really gets at is that there's an underlying issue to all addictions. And it's not about looking at the addiction and what it is. It's looking at what's causing it. And can you speak on that? What's causing the addiction. So to speak about it in more general terms, I would just say lack of self-love and self-confidence is what. I mean, I could break that down into like a million categories, but when you don't like yourself and the conditions of your life, if you don't like yourself, you're running from yourself and that causes you to, you know, drink too much or snort too much or shoot or whatever it is. Yeah, I think our culture doesn't pride itself on making its citizens love love themselves well i mean let's be real we live in a consumer-based society people who love themselves are poor poor consumers there'd be nothing to there'd be nothing to buy do you know what i mean like <laughs> look at every advertisement out there right you need makeup you yeah. need this you need weight loss you need this so it's like that's the you want the whole economy economy to fail then that's what you do because it's like people who really love themselves they don't really need too much anymore do you know what i mean so yeah it's counterproductive because, you know, and just achieving and all that stuff, right? Like if you want to be, if you want to be worth something, and a lot of a lot of that stuff I talk about in the book as well is my education and being in school and like I was a high school dropout and that made me feel horrible, especially in a society where you know the importance of going to, you know, you're nobody unless you have a university education. Educate yourself because you're not going to be, you're not worth it. But the thing is, we don't have to do stuff to be worth anything. Like you don't have to go to. For some people, that's the route and that's their path and, and great. I'm not, you know, talking negatively about education or whatever, but just there's too much emphasis on that. So everyone's trying to get, you know what I mean? I have to collect all these things or have all these achievements, so much busyness. But in the process of chasing all those things, it's like that that's really sending a very clear cut message that without these things, then who am I? And if I'm not worth anything... You know, so it's like it's like the rat race, right? Achieve, achieve, accumulate, accumulate. And uh, the issue with that being there's no cap out to it. So you measure in numbers, it never ends. I like what you just said because, you know, I've, I've faced that in my own life as well. You know, the TV's telling you to dress a certain way, look a certain way. I'm, I'm overweight because, you know, I, I weigh 200 pounds instead of 180 or... Mm -hmm. You know, I just, ah, oh, you know, I should, should be buying McDonald's, I should be buying this food, it's, it's, okay. it's good for me, these people are smiling, commercials, yet I'm, you know, <laughs> taking in 100 grams of sugar, this is, there's mixed messages, and yeah, schooling, right. you All know, that stuff. Yeah. look at right now in, in not only Toronto, but a lot of other Canadian cities, you know, there's a lot of educated people with a lot of degrees who can't find jobs, you know, mm -hmm. you know, these people go through life, go through life trying to, you know, saying or being told that, hey, get the education and get the job well when that doesn't happen what's your identity are you going to crash or are you okay with yourself right and I think that's a very valid point and that's what I talk about in the book because I honestly believe that um and I've really been working at this over the last you know eight to ten years is that when you don't cultivate another side of yourself that's completely unaffected by your achievements or lack of like if I have nothing in my 
I like to call it my spiritual bank, which is acceptance for myself, humility, patience, kindness towards others, love towards myself, then if I lose my job or I don't get into my PhD or I get divorced and I identify too deeply with those things and that falls down and I put all my eggs in that basket, what happens to me now? I'm left on this side and it's, it's empty. So cultivating that other side of yourself and saying, if that goes, I'm still here and I still get to keep all this that I've built. And that never goes anywhere. So that's what I've been working on is cultivate. And the book will explain like in all the ways I've been doing that. And some do it through higher power. I tend to gravitate towards spirituality because it resonates with my heart and my spirit and makes me feel like I have a meaningful life and, and all that. But how important that is. No one says cultivate another side of yourself, right? Everyone's saying like have kids, get married or whatever. Well, when that fails, it's like, what do I do now? Yeah, it's like, who am I? Yeah, who and, am I? Yeah. Good question. And I think the book really talks about that journey to to love, right? To love yourself. And I find my own journey, like, that's something I'm still developing, is to love myself every moment of every day. I still do these talks and I get nervous, right? Because there's still some fear of what people think. But I'm a lot better than I used to be. Yeah, that's Like, I remember when I first started at Brock, my undergrad, and I was in the seminar. I could barely talk. I'd be sweating, like, just by raising my hand. Um, but it, I, I was so addicted to marks, right? Getting A's, right? Because if I get an A, I'm a good student. If I'm a good student, my mom will love Right. Yeah. And I think, I think something really important about public speaking, why are we afraid to public speak? The only reason why we're afraid is because we believe that what we have to say isn't important. Where do we pick that up from? Because everything you have to say is important. So it's, I'm going to be judged. And you probably will be judged. But deal with it, accept it, whatever. That's on them. That's not on you. And what I have to say isn't important and and, and is you know invalid. That's why you're scared. Yeah, and I definitely like as I I, I myself start to do that, speak in public and start to love who I am. Started seeing some issues in me that were I think cultivated as a child, um, and and looking at those attachments and those views that, and perspectives, certain perspectives I had. Once those started to dissolve. I started being more confident when yeah. I started speaking. And like now I'm doing talks in front of, you know, a bunch of people and my face still turns red a little bit. Yeah. You know, I think, it, I think it's, yeah, I think it's red right response. now actually. Um, but no, no it's not, it's good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the interesting thing is that I see that growth in me and it's a sense of it, it, it didn't grow because I which went out there and started doing talks. It, it, that grew because I started to love who I am and, and my identity is based on me, not on external things, external approvals, that sort of thing. And I see it um, now more, more than anything. And I think uh, the book really talks about that. So when when you look at your life in the past, right? Do you can you see how your childhood maybe affected um, the sense of lack of love for yourself or a certain perspective and how you? Well, I'm socialization in general i'll say so all institutions i mean i won't blame anybody for my lack of of love i'm in a position to believe that the culture is counterproductive so i won't say you know specifically i mean i'm not going to say you know my whoever didn't love me enough or or whatever because i mean it went the way it went for a reason and and whatever that's all just as it should be so i'll say that but i will say just the socialization process in general. So just social institutions of all kinds. 
at school, what you learn on the playground, what you learn by watching TV, what you overhear your parents say or your friends' parents say, are those statements conducive to love? Are they filled with hope or are they filled with skept you know, skeptical statements? You know, Albert Einstein, is the world a friendly place or is the world a unsafe place? And so everything stems from, from that. And so what you're carrying is going to come out in your behavior. When you're overhearing that, oh, this person's scared, they're doubtful, they lack self-confidence. When you're a child, you're like a sponge. So you're just everywhere, right? TV, every, your family, all different kinds of things. You're just soaking that all up. So if you're not around a loving environment, and I have no grand expectations that... I have no grand expectations, you know, that everyone should be, you know, filled with un like unconditional love and we're surrounded by millions of Jesuses and they, and they can all teach us how to live, you know, so forgiving and compassionate. I mean, that that's a road in itself to, 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 go, to go through that. But. Yeah, and I think, I like what you said, like, it's not just maybe your parents, but it's the culture itself. And that's right. because people, I think even I look at my own life, I see, um, I have an expectation that people should love me. And as a child, I had that and I carried it through. And because of that, people kept disappointing me. I could never be enough for people. And no. No, right? And I still can't. No, um, that's right. <laughs> but there was something beautiful in the book that almost like it was a truth that really hit me. And it was, you can't, what was it? You can't get water from an empty well. You can't drink from an empty that's well. That's what it was, yeah. Yeah, and I think... Could you explain that? Yes, absolutely. So having... Uh, you know, we have expectations that people are supposed to love us, but we can't give what we don't have. So if I don't love myself, I can't love you, Josh, or you, Sean, or any, anybody else. Can you, you know, I can only love somebody as much as I love myself. So, and, and I don't like saying I can't love anybody. I shouldn't say that. I can only, I can love, but only to a certain degree. So the purity of my love or the unconditionalness, for lack of a better word, of my love, is going to be contingent on what I have for myself. You know what I mean? Like I can't offer you anything that I don't have. So back to the cult, you know, cultivating that other side. If I cultivate self-love, then I'm better equipped to offer that to everybody that I come in contact with. I think that's very beautiful. I don't think a lot of people fully understand that, like that concept, that perspective. But it's saying that it's your your responsibility to give love because in our culture, a lot of people aren't loving. Who they are. We'll say that six people. Maybe let's say that someone in front of you loves himself. Maybe let's say six percent. Well, they can only give you that six percent max at that time. And there's that forty percent that's still that fear, that thing that's still in there. It's like that ego that creeps in on different statements and stuff they make. And I noticed in your book, this is you you because you understood this first concept of people can only give a certain point of how much they actually love themselves. That you you were able to forgive people in your life because of that yeah because is it is it their fault that they can't love themselves or do they have their own set of conditions and circumstances that they've experienced that's not their fault everyone has their own curriculum and once you understand that it's like and and again i don't think people wake up and say oh i want to love you know 60 percent you know what i mean like everyone wants to love so fully and yeah. be and be that um but they everyone's on their own own journey so you become not angry in saying you know, why can't you love me unconditionally? Why do, why do I have to, you know, go to school to be loved or be pretty or, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. It's like jumping through hoops, right? It'll never be enough. But why can't you offer me that? Well, let's ask, you know, it's an understanding that because they're, they're not, they don't have that to give you. Yeah, they weren't their environment around them. Wasn't being, conducive wasn't like conducive. how mine wasn't. Yeah. So it's like, you, 
you're mad now or or is it, it more airs on the side of you know you you become more compassionate and saying that person and I think that's where my ability to forgive came in because I used to take a lot of stuff personally with my friends or people that betrayed me or hurt me you hurt me you know why did you do this well in hurting somebody else like that person is in pain because we don't go around hurting people unless we're already hurt like nobody's just a mean person because they're mean that's the reflecting whatever's going on internally yeah like they're trying to cope with life yeah. and it just comes out as yeah and, and they're doing the best they can with the skills that they have and when they know better and they're more filled with love then they'll be prepared to offer that to you and until then deal with it so rather than becoming so angry and judgmental and saying you owe me this mm-hmm. just understand you know and then it's a softening of the heart comes from that I like I really like that and then in the also in the book you talk about there's almost a flip side of the coin that like people can't give you that love that maybe that you want but when people let's say say something or they make fun of you and it pulls that something inside you that makes you have negative emotions like maybe get angry or frustrated you say that it's not their fault but that what they're doing is they're giving you a gift to see who you truly are underneath it all it's like they're just pulling out what's already inside yeah it's like they're pulling out that 40 percent that you don't love who you are to show you yeah because uh you can't hurt somebody who's not already dying inside and so that's a lot of people don't like that because we like to blame other people for making you made me feel you made me feel shitty so that's your fault but to be responsible for your emotions and be responsible for how you feel about yourself that's your account we're accountable for that that's, yeah, I think that's, you know, a lot of people say it, it is, it's a new idea, I think, in the sense of... I don't think it is. I no, think it's, it's a tale around. Of time. Yeah, but I think, like, you put it in such a way that it makes people rethink that, because it's such a simple truth. Well, it's a lot easier to tell somebody, you've made me angry, rather than I've allowed you to make me feel angry, because a stable, and I, I find this more and more as I get more stable and more calm, that I can handle all kinds of stuff now... <laughs> And you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, your well is full. You know, you that's right. You've got a lot of love mm-hmm. to, to give. Mm-hmm. So you're able to rethink mm-hmm. whatever your interaction is. And, and you have the, the power. You know, you're in warrior mode. That's right. <laughs> warrior mode. So I feel like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just more equipped, you know, to deal with that. And I understand, like, nobody's really going to, like, I don't like feeling sad and depressed. I don't think anybody does. Or feeling down. I, joy feels better to me better for my health and my everything so I can function better when I'm in joy and I'll have to understand that you have to protect your joy so fiercely because I've really worked to get to this place in my life so I just can't let if I just allowed every single person I came in contact with that said Jade we don't like you or you're this or you're a mess or whatever if I let that fluctuate my mood I would always be depressed because I can always find something like, you know what I mean? You can always, you know when you're having a bad day and like one thing after another, just, you know, yeah. spill milk and whatever, you know, it's a coffee on yourself or whatever. Like, it's just one thing after another, just angry, angry, angry. You're in that state, right? So it's like, you can always find something that can really fluctuate your mood, but to really protect your joy once you do get to that space where you have cultivated it is very important to me. So now I don't really let a lot of I mean, in some days I fall down and it's not easy, but the duration and intensity of those things are significantly reduced. I like that. And I think it's, it's beautiful that you've been on this journey. And I think people who maybe be listening, they might say, oh, that's a lot of work, right? And to take responsibility for every emotion you have, that's it's like a big burden. 
but at the same time, I think it's hopeful. Like, I think there's a lot of hope in that because if you are responsible for your own emotions, that means you can change it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very optimistic. Is it a lot of work? Yeah, it's going to take commitment. It's going to take sacrifice. And you have you have to want it. Mm-hmm. But you have to, and I talk about this in the book, when you're tired of doing the same old, because I used to be the angriest person I ever met. And I just dwell in that anger all the time. Judgment, anger, criticism. It's like a circle. Eventually you just get to the point and you just say, like, this can't be what working, you know what I mean? This can't be my everyday for the rest of my life. Something has to change. And once I said that out loud to whoever, pretty much to myself alone in the room, like, you know, this can't be it forever. Then it's like, show me how to show me how to work through this so I can be more accountable for, for my mental state. That, that's a, an excellent point. And I think, uh, you know, doing the work and getting yourself to that level where, you know, your well was full, um, you know, is important. It's hard work, but and it starts with the basics. And I think I read a book on uh, neuroplasticity and the thoughts we think every day. And, and I got into that habit where you walk past a mirror and you're like, wow, I'm ugly today. Or, you know, and it's just normal, general daily activities. Or you're in traffic and, you know, you're swearing at the person who cut you off. Yeah. These are, these are I was the, good at that yeah, one. <laughs> these are the statements that we tell ourselves and they, they're, we think they're truths, but they're not really. And then they, that sets our tone for our day to become negative. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And that's a really good one, like road rage and stuff. But you don't even, if you write down your thoughts, you will be so embarrassed because those thoughts, like exactly what you said, somebody cuts me off and you look in the mirror. So I'm really big on like affirmations and stuff. So I, and I really struggled with this at first, but I would go in front of the mirror and say, you know, I love you. You're, you're beautiful. And at first I could barely get the words out. I would bawl my eyes out literally because I'm like, you're a liar. You don't believe that in your heart. Now I can say it because I know in my heart, like I feel that right. So, or in traffic. Yeah. You're in traffic. You're driving a car. You're coming from somewhere. Maybe it's a job. Maybe you're going to the gym. Like, you know, so really setting the tone for gratitude, you know? Yeah. You're in traffic. You might not have picked it. And I find the more and more, it's all about perspective, right? So the more and more but that's very smart because thinking about self-directed neuroplasticity, the power of the brain, the power of thoughts, sending out and giving you an experience back. It's if you move through life saying my life is shit, well, guess what? Your life is going to be a struggle. Yeah. And I think it's key for looking at the past. You know, and you do this in your book where you're looking back with a different narrative. That's right. Because you've analyzed it. Now you're setting uh, a different type of alignment with what happened in the past, and it might even change the memory of it. That, that's that's right. Perspective, yeah. And I, and I don't want to be angry looking back at my path. And and I'm you know somebody that said like this. And as I got more connected with my spiritual journey and connecting with my higher power, then I started understanding through reading different literature, and more importantly through listening to my heart. I understand that nothing in my life, and I can't say this, I can't make anybody else believe this for their life, but nothing has been purposeless in my life. Everything has had a role and a reason. And so to pull meaning from that and say, there's no way I've been through a cocaine addiction, a sex addiction, chasing people around, begging them to love me, hating myself, you know, involved in just, just the most crazy things I couldn't even explain to you over this. We don't even have time. But, like, there's no way that I could have walked through all that for no reason. And so it helps me. And maybe that's a coping thing or whatever. I don't care because it's helped me make sense 
of my life and it's helped me let go of resentment and move closer to a place of love. So if that's working for me, then that's the road I'm taking. And you said, um, just going back a little bit, you said something about gratitude, that you're having this gratitude now for life. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of like being in the moment because when you're grateful for where your life is right now, you're trying to be, you're saying, I'm grateful for this moment. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a man, Eckhart Tolle, he really mm -hmm. speaks about, you know, being in the moment. Beautiful uh, man. So have you, do you know Eckhart Tolle? Have, yes. have you read his books? Yes, I have. Yeah, he's a beautiful man. I actually, he was in Vancouver just last week on the 17th of April, and I went to one of his lectures in the evening with Eckhart Tolle, and just his whole spirit. I really resonate with him and his whole spirit. It's like listening to him talk about embracing the now and how all our thoughts are all our ang anxious thoughts are, you know, connected with thoughts of the future in anticipation of what's to come, which, like, whatever, let it be. And then, you know, thoughts about our past, which usually aren't really positive thoughts about our past. Like, if you think back in the past, you're thinking of, like, I messed up on that. That relationship went to shit. I wish that never happened to me. You know what I mean? Like, they're just really negative. There's a negative connotation on the thoughts we have in the past. When we're in the moment, there's no judgments. There's, it doesn't have to be anything. It's just, you're just here. Right? You're just here, you're breathing, you're following your breath. There's nothing to do. And so I really like the way that he expresses his position on that, all that. And very inspirational teacher, beautiful man. I can't even describe, you know, the way being in his presence made me feel. And it was a spiritual blessing. Yeah, it seems like his method and his path that he took about being in the, in the, in the now is a little different than the path you took which was really focusing on loving yourself. But I think they ended up in the same place, you know? Yeah, well, I think there's, uh, you know, there's a, there's um, many paths up the same mountain. So I would say that, yeah, it's just yeah. different. Like loving yourself and being in the moment actually is the same thing. Yeah, well, when you're in the moment, you are in love with yourself. Mm -hmm. And you're also in love with everything else. Because there's no, there's no, there's no judgments now. There's no you know, conditions. I need this to be, you know, when you're thinking about the future, the past, I wish it gone this way, or I'm hoping it's going to go this way in my future, right? I need this to be happy, or I need this to feel good. Like right now, like there's no, there's no work for us to do. Like we're sitting here right now yeah. and we can just be here with each other and there's no expectations. It's very, um, and that's how you recharge your energy as well, because in the past or the future, when you're in in any other moment other than right now, you're depleting your energy. Like, you know what I mean? It makes you tired. Like, you know, you worry about something in the future, you feel exhausted, right? Oh God, what's going to happen and everything, you know, it's heavy. I think that's, uh, it's important to do that is to, I think, take a moment, recharge, you know, be in the moment, work on your breathing. Meditation plays a part of that, you know? Mm -hmm. I just think about people that I know or, or you know, and just their general society where people are going to work, they're commuting, takes them an hour and a half to get to work, they're rushing in the mornings, they're doing their, their job, they're working eight, nine, ten hours a day, they're coming back, they're feeding their kids, they're taking their dog for a walk, they're watching TV and they're going to bed. When do they have a quiet moment? When do they have a moment to reflect, you know, be with your thoughts, uh, say positive things to yourself? And I wanted to ask you, you know, as a spiritual coach, where do you start with how do you get them to have that? Well, I can't get anybody to have anything. So that's, there has to be a willing effort for a change. It has to be bad enough that people say, whatever I'm doing now isn't working. And I don't have all the answers, 
but I can tell you, and this is part of the thing, like I could share my story and hope that a part of my life will resonate with you. And I can tell you, well, this is how I got to a place. And I was like really big into psychology. So my, my getting to this point came from asking myself a lot of questions and then coming to a place of acceptance with those questions. So when I felt anxious or I felt purposeless, then I would start asking questions. So why do I feel anxious? When do I feel anxious? What are my triggers? Have I felt anxious my whole life? Do you know what I mean? Why do I feel like I have to do that? And I would just pay attention to my behavior. So I would know when I was around different people, I would act differently. Why am I doing that? You know what I mean? So it's just, I became more, just I woke up and start paying attention to what I'm doing and what I'm feeling all the time. So I became to know myself and I just, I would just get to know myself. So develop a sense of, because a lot of times we're on, you know, autopilot. We're not stopping to say, or if you got, I get angry, something happens to me. Well, why am I angry? What is really under this, right? If somebody stands me up, what is under that, right? So I'm angry. Why am I angry? Because I feel not valued. Because I feel, you know, that person could have, you know, there's a million reasons why that person might have not showed up. And none of them have to do with my um, worthiness as a person. But if I already have a model inside of me that says I'm not valuable or I'm not important, then I'm going to take that experience and I'm going to blow it up and say, oh, I'm not important, right? But then I say, why do I feel like I'm not important? Where in my life is this the first time I've ever felt unimportant? No, it's not. It's not at 25. At 20, I felt unimportant. Or 19. Oh, I can go back to 15. I felt unimportant. And I can follow that back and I can see how I've created that model. And through exploring all those things, then I understand it doesn't mean it's true, but then I can deconstruct the whole thing. So then once you deconstruct everything, you can separate the emotion from the event. So now you understand somebody not showing up or even somebody calling you a foul name. Do you know what I mean? So it's just about, and, and life will give you what it needs to give you to show. If you say, okay, I'm ready to pay attention to how I feel, it's, you don't even have to really do anything. You just have to have that wanting. Life will give you whatever it needs to give you to show you. And it'll be through your normal day-to-day stuff. You pay attention, you wake up, and that's how I got there. And then I said, you know, those things aren't true about me. And, you know, and then that helped me cultivate the love. So that's the way I, I've done it. But some people, they're not into psychology. I've heard people say, I've come to a place of self-love through knitting or through working in my garden. Do I have a full understanding of how that has become no, but I don't doubt that it's authentic. That's very interesting. So yeah, it's first like the way you talk to people, it's based on a, uh, your, a certain perspective that takes people's whole life into account and helps people, it looks like trace back maybe when the feelings started. And when you have uh, clients, is there, do you tend to see like a rush in them? Like they want to be like- They want it now. Yeah. They want to be healed now. They think it's like a, there's some like magic, but if you look, that's the culture too, right? I want to lose weight. Give me a pill. Give me a magic pill. I don't want to work at it, but it's not like that. It's going to, and there's going to be tears. And when you're uprooting everything, see the thing is too, it's like now I can sit here and say, I'm accountable for my emotions and whatever, but it has been a very, and people close to me know it's been a lot. It's a, you know, a lot of spiraling and a lot of ups and downs and a lot of tears and a lot of pains and a lot of nights alone and feeling isolated and 
is this, you know, what am I doing and why is this taking so long? But when you're asking yourself or your God or whoever it is, when will I be enlightened? You're asking the wrong question because it's not about where you're going to arrive to. It's about I'm at a point now where I think it's important enough for me to dedicate some time and energy into getting to a better spot. Yeah, and you speak too about like being kind to yourself on the journey. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's when we rush. We're like judging ourselves on the journey. Yeah, you're too slow. Yeah. You're too slow. You should be speeding up. You should be already, you know, like, you should be like almost done now. It's been two years, three years. Yeah, yeah. Why aren't you better at this? Yeah, yeah. I think that's very common too. And I think having a gentleness towards yourself is very important in recovery from addiction because yes. it's it's a, it's a cycle. And with, ev- with everything, with your spiritual walk, with everything you do, it's, it's you have to be so... It's so delicate, and we're not really delicate. A lot of us aren't really delicate people. I certainly wasn't. I'm just so abrasive and aggressive, and, you know, that backfired on me. So uh, through time, I understand you have to be so, you know, and I, like, from my perspective, I learned to treat myself the way that God would treat me, or my, my God, who I understand my God to be, which is so, so forgiving, so gentle with me. So then I say, can you love yourself the way God would? Because when I mess up, God didn't say, I'm done with you. Don't ever come back here. No, pray again. Come back again. Do whatever it is again. So you'll get there. You'll get there. There's so, it's a very strong feeling of, of compassion. So to turn that inwards towards yourself and say, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Every, every small step is a step. And so to not be so rushed and understand there's joy in going through it. I mean, it wouldn't be as fun and as profound and powerful if it was drop of a hat it, it's, it's a huge change it can be a huge change well it usually is a huge change and but it can be fearful you know it can uncover a lot of stuff it could you know you could start dig deep into you know what's causing you to have these attachments or what's causing you to have this pain and then realize hey uh, i jumped into the wrong career you know this uh, i gotta have to change careers or oh, maybe i'm in a relationship that i don't want to be in or something yeah. like that and very, very good point. Because I had a lot of, as I started going on the spiritual journey, then I was wearing shoes that did not fit, that I did not want to wear. And how do you tell people that think they know you? I don't want to do this anymore. Because yeah. they're saying, you're nuts. Who are you? You're not, I'm not that person anymore. I quit. And so to, to be, do you know what I mean? You've worked your whole life for this. I don't want to do it anymore. And that's about, that's hard too. That takes a lot of courage to be honest with yourself and to know that you've changed. And so, and a lot of people I know in spirit, on spiritual walk have come to that exact thing. You say, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. It doesn't suit me. But a lot of people just say, you know, I'm here and I'm committed. And so that's scary too. So, you know, and luckily I've had people in my life that were more accepting of me saying this walk that I'm now on is the most important thing to me in my life. And having, you know, my other half or whoever it is, be accepting of that. And saying and under and knowing me and understanding, yeah, it is the most important thing. You know, go do what you gotta do. If this shoe doesn't fit, you can you're allowed to take it off. You know, but not everyone's gonna be that receptive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you have to do you have to reevaluate who you have around you once absolutely. you're on that journey and say, Is this person here to support me or are they just telling me more lies that I'm believing? Right. Yeah, yeah you have to decide what's what's conducive. And I've lost a lot of a lot of people on the spiritual journey struggles with my family and friends when i stopped using time yeah. people don't want me anymore 
right? And then you get into the spiritual walk and they, they're going to label you and say, you're nuts, right? I feel better, but you're calling me nuts. So you have to be willing to let, you know what I mean? And I know to where I am in the journey that whoever is meant to be with me will come and they've come and they've come hard. Do you know what I mean? And they've been walking with me this whole way. How grateful I am for that. Like nothing better than that. Wow. I think that's beautiful. Like the whole conversation and that hopefully it can help others hearing this as they move forward and to be kind to themselves as they move forward because it is a journey and we're not perfect and we can't just, it's not a switch you turn on. Love is a, you know, you have to sort of work to love yourself just like you had to work to, to not love yourself. And so if you put 20, if you're 20 years, you put 20 years in not loving yourself, you know? And, <laughs> so, right. and so now, like, you know, at least wait 20 years and see if you're, you love yourself then. Um, but if you're really on the path, as you said, and you start being kind to yourself, it'll be a, a very gentle ride and you won't be looking at how long it's been. You're looking at, oh, I can't believe I'm here. I'm different than I yeah. was yesterday and yeah. that counts for something. Yeah, very true. And so I think it's been... This has been a, a very long podcast, and uh, <laughs> you know, usually it's about a half hour or so. Yeah, right? we can cut them into two, you know, part one, part two. Maybe not. I don't know, because I think this is, this is going well. But I think now we'll go into the loss, like we do. That's our sort of thing. So what yes. we do is we talk about your life and who, who you are, and then we'll talk about the loss, because this is a Grief Dreams podcast. So um, the first question I have for you is, have you lost anyone? I've lost a lot of people, a lot of people in my life friends and uh, family members and stuff. Any like specific losses that maybe you want to share? Well, for the sake of time and effort, I'll go to um, pets, two pets I had, two dogs I had that were very, very close to me. One was a, they were both shepherds. One was a German shepherd, the other was a sable shepherd. And uh, just, you know, they were my best friends and so close to me and just such, were with me at such, you know, profound parts of my life and just really struggled with grieving the loss of that because you I you know it, it just the unconditional love you get from a pet is like nothing else so to have that and I've always been an animal lover so that was a struggle for me so those two and I don't think a lot of people talk about when they talk about grief and they talk about loss not a lot of people think you know pets are important enough to contribute but some people lose a goldfish and it hurts them or whatever and nobody can really tell you if it's important or not it's about the connection that you had and not everyone has awareness of that so I think you know in I think it's important to discuss how losing a pet can be equally equally traumatic to you know losing one of your family members yeah and I think through even just through the research I'm doing now with pet loss I see that more and more how the, our culture doesn't isn't sort of set up to acknowledge the losses of animals and as you said, like a lot of people who have pets, that they almost hurt more than a human loss. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons that that could be is like they look at you a different way than humans do. You know, like humans, they love you, but they also do some things that make you hate them, right? They do, they say some things that, you know, aren't always as pleasant or have judgment on you. But an animal, when you look in their eyes, it's like you see something, you see a love, you see just like an acceptance of who you are. Yeah. I think you can't get from another human uh, you know and so i'm sorry to hear about those the loss of those pets thank you yeah i miss them so much and yeah it's just it's something i always hold on to like really fond memories and stuff but just uh, you know a, a space in your heart for that and just you know missing them and, and all the love that they give you and i think that's a hard part i think owning an animal 
kids or having any animal around. Is Could because, you anticipate? Yeah, because they don't live as long as we do. Right. You know, and so some people have four, five, six different, you know, animals um, before they pass. And so they have to really, to, to want something to love you, knowing it's going to probably pass before you do, is a very difficult thing. Um, but the reward, I think, of having that love is so amazing. I'm thinking that's what you had with your two dogs. What's, uh, what's amazing with animals as well, and, and I, I recently uh, got my first dog, and so I'm starting to understand that world a little more, but you're in the moment so much, especially when he was a puppy. Like I had almost no time. I would, I would actually think, wow, I haven't really thought about or had any like stresses. <laughs> yeah. I'm just so busy. You know, taking them for walks or feeding them or you know, whatever it is. Yeah. So I think that's a good lesson that we should learn from animals is, you know, stay in the moment. It, obviously, it's... it's I know. Good. Pets are so good yeah. at just being being here now. Yeah. Like, they're in that space, right? They're not thinking, you know, and I think, oh, my dog has a very short attention span. Like, but he's not... I, it's funny. I seen this thing on Facebook. It was like a picture. And it said, like, why your dog is happier than you are. And it's a man walking with his dog. And the dog had an empty bubble or the thinking <laughs> bubble above his head and the man had one and it was just filled yeah. with all the stuff. Yeah. You know, the dog's just like, I'm outside, I'm walking, it's great. Yeah, yeah it's the gift and the curse of a neocortex. <laughs> so, but, but yeah, that's that's something as humans and we have to now understand, okay, now we have this brain that lets us go back 20 years and think about that mistake that we made or whatever it is. Well, we have to manage that as well. Now. We can't just go back willy-nilly and let the uh, negative thoughts come in or traumas that we face uh, enter into what we're doing. Yeah, there's actually really funny, and I don't know who, who it's by, but it's a very like, a fitting quote, and it's the thinking mind is um, a, a terrible master, but a, a really good servant. You know, if you can make it work for you yes. then. Wow, that's something I'm, I'm actually really glad you talked about animal lives. It's something we haven't had in the podcast yet, and I think it's the awareness of that, that people who lose an animal have similar grief. It is different, but it's very similar in the sense of loss and, and the longing and the sadness and even depression that can come after that. Absolutely. So definitely raise awareness on that. So thank you for sharing those no two problem. losses. No problem. Thank you. Uh, the next one is, um, since you talk about grief, you talk about dreams, have you dreamt of those those animals after they pass? Or have you had any grief dreams of any of your, any people that have, uh, have died? The animals, no. And, um... I've had a couple dreams of people that have have passed. They're kind of nondescript. I have, I just, you know, I want to use this opportunity to talk about just one dream that I had about somebody that I didn't even know in their body who was, uh, he was a spiritual teacher. His name's Neem Karoli Baba. It's Maharaji, his, his devotees call them, but he was just like a saint in India. And I always felt really connected to him and I was led to him through Ram Das, who was another spiritual teacher. So he was Ram Dass' guru. The most profound dream I had, he, he died in 1970, or he left his body in 1972, 1973. So 10 plus years before I was even born. But I've always had a connection with him and stuff. And about a year ago, I had a dream. It was the night before my birthday. I had a dream where I was in this industrial type setting and um, I was walking down the street and there was this old like warehouse and there was a riot going on so there was people flipping cars and lighting stuff on fire and smashing windows and and stuff and I ducked to the right down an alley and there was like a little wood shed in there so I went into the wood shed and in the corner of the wood shed there was a I guess a you know a bunk bed or whatever so I went and sat down on the bunk bed 
and there was blankets there. And uh, I curled up in the blanket, and I remember feeling, you know, oh, I'm in here now, I'm kind of safe and, you know, protected or whatever. And then Maharaji appeared to the right of me out of nowhere. And um, there's a story about how his devotees used to always want, you know, to get a spiritual blessing, and they would try and touch his leg. And he would, you know, play games and pull his leg under the blanket. And, you know, people just wanted to, like, touch him, right? So he reached out to touch my leg, and I pulled my leg under the blanket and, you know, started to laugh like it was was a joking thing. And he said, you don't want me to touch you? And I said, no, I do. And I lifted up my thing, and he touched my thigh. And then he looked in my eyes, and it was, like, the most vivid, like, I I could, I don't know what he smells like, but I feel like I could, you know what I mean, smell what he would smell like. And I could hear in the background, like, the riot going out out there. And he looked in my eyes and he said, all you need to remember is the dove of hope. And I'm not sure exactly what that meant, but as soon as he said that, I woke up. But I had like so much, I was so peaceful. Like my, do you know what I mean? I just thought a man that I don't even know, I've never even met him in the body. Like I've read books and story, Miracle of Love, which is a compilation of stories about Maharaji and, and all his, you know, witty little games and unconditional love, you know, stories of like from his devotees and stuff but it was so profound it was probably the most profound dream I had and then I thought you know that's you know I didn't grieve his passing but he had transitioned and he was coming to me in a dream and there was no doubt in my mind that like that was his spirit and we we were having our moment in that thing and and um it and I couldn't even really tell you all the ways that 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 changed my life maybe I'll never know but it gave me hope and a lot of comfort Wow, that's actually really amazing. I think a lot of people, even when I have that certain type of feel for a lot of these dreams that they would call visitation dreams, where they get the sense of comfort when they wake up and it changes who they are. As I, as I say, like something like one dream of the deceased can like be like 10 years of psychotherapy. It gives you something that you could never get while you're awake, right? It, it did something to you. It was like it was a significant event in your life. And you, you said you can still remember it. You can almost smell it. With, with, it's so vivid. There's something that's just implanted in you. And I want to take the opportunity to actually talk about not, you said you haven't met him, and the dream wasn't based on your grief per se, but it was based on him comforting you in, yes. in life. And this actually... Um, well, and it's kind of weird because I was thinking about him in the days leading up to the dream, mm-hmm. like more, I'm always thinking about him, but more than usual. Okay. So that's one thing I remember. So I thought, did I bring that on because I was thinking about him more than usual. I don't know, but that's yeah. just, you know, a little piece of something. Well, it's interesting, yeah, because it was just thought that we would always have these dreams, right? There's something, it seems like there's something more going on. Yeah, for um, sure. But continuing on with the, what I was going to say is that what I've seen in a lot of uh, grief accounts or people telling me about their grief dreams, that in the beginning of loss, like after the like, first year or two, it's talking about their, their grief, right? So it's reassuring them that they're there, reassuring that they still love them, that sort of thing. But after that, the dreams actually start to change. And it, and people sort of comment that they don't come, and they don't have dreams of the deceased offering comfort based on the grief. They offer comfort based on whatever they're going through in that, in that time. So let's say you're just having a bad breakup. They come, and they'll talk about the bad breakup. So you have a dream with the deceased, and you're talking about the breakup, and the deceased is comforting you. So it's not about your grief as in their passing. It's based on what you are dealing with in the present. It seems like that dream of, Maharaji was similar to that. And you can see this in actually pop culture with the Big Bang Theory. So they had those of you who watched the show, 
Uh, in season seven, uh, Sheldon lost one of uh, his, his dear friends, Dr. Proton. And so he had a dream in, in the episode, I forget what episode it was, um, but you can check that out on the, uh, the website, uh, www.griefdreams.ca. And uh, when, you, when he had that dream, it was about his loss. And, and so he woke up, comforted, hugged Leonard, and then went on with his day. But then two years later, so two seasons he later. He hugged Leonard or he hugged Sheldon? Leonard. Okay. Yeah, Sheldon hugged Leonard. Oh, okay. Right. And then at the, uh, so then in season nine, two years after that, they brought back a dream of Dr. Proton. But this time Sheldon wasn't worrying about his loss anymore. He was actually contemplating um, having coitus with Amy. <laughs> <laughs> he uses funny words in the show. Um, so anyways, he was contemplating that, and Dr. Proton came to him in a dream, offering him advice and comfort on that area. And I think, so like they as a show, I think picked up on that, the change in theme, which relates okay, back to, yeah. right, like what you're having, yeah. how it's the dream of the deceased is actually based on what you're doing and going through in life right now right which is very very interesting um moving forward and also i like how you brought in someone that you never met you know like like some people may dream of jesus or other prophets or, or saints yeah and, and i've, I've uh, had those as well i mean i don't have yeah. time to get into all that but i mm-hmm. did i've and i've had like a dream of rob doss before and stuff like that too so yeah. yeah so i would consider that a grief dream right because it is someone that has passed away yeah that is comforting you and in yeah. life. So, yeah. yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. You talk about two different things when it comes to loss that we haven't had on the show yet, which was the, the pet loss and then also um, having a dream of a, a saint or a prophet. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and it, it makes me visualize kind of like a frequency coming out of your body, like some spiritual frequency that's just being tapped into. Okay. Like, yeah, I know, it's a little off there. No, but, no, that's... But it's just like, you know, and you've worked on that you know, from the beginning when you first had your kind of aha click moment you know, building up that frequency so it's so strong and maybe it's just so strong it's dipping into your dreams where you're getting that advice or kind of help, if you will, that you need to know or support, like like hope. Very cool. Jade, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Um, you know, we could go all day. We could go for you know, know. 24 hours speaking about what you have going on. Um, I just want to, again, everybody, please check it out on Amazon. You can find the book, uh, Quiet Mind, Open Heart by Jade Black. Any other place they can find it? Just Amazon is, 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 is the best way. I have an um, e-copy there. You can order a paperback. And then also um, I have a link on my website, www.quietmindspiritualcoaching.com. And I'm also on Instagram at quietmindcoaching, at quietmindcoaching. So check out my page there. That's great. Yeah. So like, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. I know it went longer. As you said, we might have to split up in two, right? And that's fine um, at the end of the day. So, fine by me. Thank yeah. you so much for having me, guys. Definitely. Everybody, please check out the podcast. You can find it again at www.podbean.com or uh, under uh, at griefdreams.ca. And there's a section you can see for podcast. Um, this is episode three. You can download it. Um, please, if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at griefdreamspodcast at gmail.ca. Oh, it's a com? It's a uh, it might be com or ca. Look on the website. <laughs> There's a contact page there, and you can, you gotta you work can find it. it. Yeah, yeah uh, you're right. It might be dot com. Anyways. In any event. In thank any you for having me. Absolutely. Good night. <laughs>